You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 48, Pain. Approximately 7.63 million, or one in four Canadians aged 15 or older, live with chronic pain, a debilitating condition that is often inadequately treated and often associated with other chronic conditions, including mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety. Compounding the challenge is that drugs that are most effective in treating chronic pain, for example, the opioids, things like morphine and fentanyl, have significant addictive potential and are at high risk for overdose among users. Obviously, it remains a challenge for science to not only better understand the roots of chronic pain, but also to develop better and safer treatments. Today, we are very fortunate to have on Minding the Brain, one of my dear neuroscience colleagues, Dr. Mike Hildebrand. The Hildebrand Lab is interested in understanding spinal mechanisms of pain processing, and they use a combination of molecular, pharmacological, electrophysiological, and behavioral approaches to identify the molecular pathways that regulate pain sensation in both acute and chronic pain states. Welcome, Mike. So we're going to start with a very big question. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what exactly is pain? Thanks, Kim, and thanks for the opportunity to be on this podcast talking about what I'm passionate about, obviously, is pain. So um, what is pain in general? Simply put, the definition of pain is that it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. But it can also be actually something that looks like this response, even when there is no triggering tissue damaging stimuli. And, and, and another important note is that because the definition of pain and pain has this emotional component, it means pain is truly subjective. So it can only be known really by the individual. And so a challenge then for the medical community, for the research community, is we can't have a simple biomarker for pain. There's no test that you can take that says, yes, you're experiencing pain or no, you're, you're not experiencing pain. And so that, that can be a challenge. Another, I think, thing to right up front to, to point out is that because pain involves this, this sensory, but also this emotional experience, it can be influenced by a wide range of biopsychosocial factors. And these can include internal, biological, and psychological factors, but also relationship factors, external stressors, and other, other elements in our surrounding environment, environmental factors. And all of these, all of these things interact to basically shape how we experience pain when we experience pain, the magnitude of pain that we experience. And so, yes, that can be a challenge, but what's actually can be cool in, about this from a treatment um, perspective is that means that we can target these different components. And so there's pain therapeutics involving physical therapy, involving exercise, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, education, and as well as pharmaceutical agents that can all help reduce pain. And so it can, I think we really need to think of pain from this kind of holistic approach, even though a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today and, and my specific research really distills down to some of the biological mechanisms and potential targets. Yeah, that really emphasizes the sort of complexity of pain, right? That, that it's, uh, you know, like you said, it's individual differences. There's a lot of different factors that can influence even that individual difference. And, and the challenge of really not having a biomarker, we can't 
tell, you know, when somebody is actually experiencing pain, but all of us have experienced pain to varying degrees because we know it's, it's highly adaptive to experience pain, right? If you're, if you cut yourself or you, you have trauma to your body, you, you have to cope with it in order to actually survive. So there is a huge adaptability to pain, but that said, it's still something that we want to avoid. And I'm wondering if you can talk us a little bit through, like, are there people who don't really experience pain or experiencing it so differently that, you know, it, it's, it poses a challenge for treatment or recognition of the pain state? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, as, as you'd said, we all kind of experience pain differently because we have subtle genetic differences, exper- different experiences, and, and various factors that, that cause us to all kind of have this unique pain experience. But there are extremes. And so these are rare conditions. But there's rare genetic conditions where actually people have complete lack of pain sensation. So that's called, one of them's called congenital insensitivity to pain. And so an example of, of individuals with, with CIP are that there was this family actually of street performers that were identified. Um, in Pakistan, who would do these 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 things like walking on coals, swallowing knives, these risky, damaging behaviors, um, but didn't experience any pain, and they were actually used for a genetic study. I shouldn't say used; they were they were studied, um, and it was identified that there was an individual um, mutation in one specific, so one amino acid change in one protein that caused this complete loss of pain in in this family. Wow! Yeah, yeah. One amino acid. Yeah, one amino acid. So it shows how complex things are, but how how intricate these processes are, and how they can be disrupted. The, obviously, this is a rare condition, but but it, it, it's it's very severe. And I think that example, actually, from the street performer example, it highlights, as you were saying, that the adaptive nature of pain and why it's not good to have no pain. Because actually one of the source family member was a 14-year-old boy, and he actually tragically died from jumping off of a roof as a stunt. And so I think that shows how we need pain to learn throughout development, uh, sources of danger, sources of, of potential yeah, trauma to ourselves, and when we're hurt, how to, how to promote proper recovery. And so, so these are critical aspects that, that when we don't have them, that can be bad. Yeah. Well, it's reminding me of a study that I learned when I was in undergrad mm-hmm. about these Scotty dogs. Do you remember the study where they were, um, they were raised uh, almost in like very cushy environments where they never experienced any pain or trauma. Like they were in this protective bu- bubble almost. Mm-hmm. And then when they were tested as adults, they didn't respond to painful stimuli to the same extent as other dogs that were raised in quote unquote normal circumstances. Do you, do you remember learning no, about this? Oh, that's really, that's that's really <laughs> interesting though. And I think that's a great point of how our experiences shape, shape right. our sense, our, our sensations, including pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's mm-hmm. And even our, our psychological response to pain, right? Yes. If, if, yeah, if you have a parent that's constantly sort of, Oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Right. You, you hear about this, that it, that can shape the child's response to painful events and then yeah, their absolutely. reactions in the future. Yeah. Uh, so a- actually relating to currently like 
vaccines and vaccinations. And when you get your child vaccinated, even how parents, their level of stress, their right ability to kind of distract and those things can really shape and reduce the amount of pain in the child. Or if it's the other way, it can increase it. So I think yeah. these education components are critical in terms of helping us all kind of adapt and and, and uh, reduce at least un- unnecessary levels of pain for some experiences. For sure. And that's, I think, what Christine Chambers, a lot of her work, right? Yes, that's exactly who as I was thinking of. She's led a lot of that. And she has some great knowledge translation around those kind of things too, which is a critical piece of... Yeah, for sure. For those of you that are listening, uh, Christine Chambers is a, a scientist, a psychologist out of Halifax and at Dalhousie University and does a lot of work on um, developments of pain, um, psychological perceptions of pain. And she has a, a huge portfolio on exactly what Mike was just talking about, like mobilizing that knowledge to patients and patient families on how to uh, mitigate painful states, particularly if kids with experiencing chronic pains or cancer pains, for example. So shout out to one of my sheroes, Dr. Christine Chambers. So let's um, move a little bit away from more of the psychological component of pain. And I want to get into the nitty gritty of understanding the physiological basis of pain. So Mike, can you walk us through a scenario? Like imagine I've cut my finger, you know, with a knife, like what exactly is happening both at the, you know, the source of the injury and then how pain is transmitted into the brain. You bet. So when you cut your finger, obviously that would cause mechanical damage, right? So you're, you're causing tissue injury. And so that direct tissue imagery, Im, yeah, tissue injury or mechanical damage then would cause activation of certain specific molecular pain detectors. And so these pain detectors are receptors that convert that, that stimuli, that mechanical trauma into an electrical signal. And that electrical signal is the way information is coded in the nervous system. So then the electrical signal can then travel along these nerve fibers that, that are contained within our peripheral sensory neurons. And so the amazing thing is these signals travel from these nerve fibers that have their endings in, yes, in your finger that was cut, travel all the way up your arm and connect into the spinal cord. So those are individual cells, individual neurons that, that take that message from the site of injury all the way to the spinal cord. They then enter the spinal cord, that information is processed, and we'll talk about that, I think, coming up a bit more, and then it's ultimately relayed um, to the brain, which encodes the that unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that we know of as pain. Fascinating. So, yeah, when it gets to the brain, that's really the big processing, right? So, it's, um, you know, we recognize the pain signal, like the mm-hmm. sensory component, and then we organize, the organism then organizes the behavior to deal with it, correct? Correct. Yes. Like that. So there's ascending and then descending, uh, like coming out of the brain, back down into the spinal cord, and then the, there's like the motor response. Yes, a hundred percent. So there's feedback right. coming from the brain back down to the spinal cord. Yes. And as a quick aside, um, I know that David Julius from University of California, San Francisco, or UCSF, recently won a Nobel Prize, right, this year for identifying some of these. Do you know a little bit about that? Yeah. So he, he identified some of these. So we, our example was mechanical damage. But another type of, of potential tissue damaging or noxious stimuli is, is heat, right? We can burn ourselves. And so there's certain receptors 
sensors that are involved in detecting that that heat damage and converting it into painful signals. And the one type are referred to as TRIP-V1, and David Julius actually identified and cloned that that molecule and, and identified it as a heat receptor. And it's actually, interestingly, it relates to culinary as well as that's that what capsaicin, chili pepper, binds to. So the same receptor that's activated by heat can actually be activated by chemicals as well. And so that's why when, so when I was in elementary school and we, we had, I don't remember why, but we ate jalapeno peppers. And I, in elementary school? And I don't know why. I think it was food. I cannot remember. Obviously, speaking of tra- trauma, but the real trauma was I touched my eye. Ooh. So bad. And that's because, nuts. right, that capsaicin in, in our eye. I know we're going on a tangent here, but yeah. we have these pain detectors in our eye, even on the on our on our eye that including trip v1 you know what mike i did the same thing when i was in high school we went out to eat pizza yeah at mother's mother's pizzeria in barry ontario and you know that um in pizza restaurants they often have these chili flakes like in a like a salt or pepper shaker and you can shake that onto your pizza yeah well i shook it on and then i had it on my fingertips and then i rubbed my eye So I 100% know what you went through. And then the silly thing was the next year, I was like, oh, remember I did that? And then I did it again. (laughs) (laughs) So you didn't your pain. No, it wasn't one. It was not one trial learning. Anyway, (laughs) but you know, it is fascinating that people like, as you say, we will eat these super spicy dishes with things like chilies and like peppers. And we Yet we continue, like, there's some pleasurable element of that, right? Like, there has to be. A hundred percent. That the And it's, I don't think we fully understood that pain pleasure kind of link, but there is definitely, there's some elements there of how there can be crosstalk. And the other point is, as you eat more of it, once again, this is a side, but it's going to relate to, I think, something we can talk a little bit later. You need more and more to have the same experience, because even at a molecular level, your receptors can adapt to basically desensitize. So it takes more stimuli to have the same experience. And so that's an example of how experience can shape pain. Interesting. So even not even like that's not even just in the same eating session. It's like over time, over time. Like I'm eating chilies every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, you can you can have they can desensitize, they can be internal, you can have less numbers, right? Um, and it's the same with salty diet. So it kind of it's one of those principles, right, that you can you can change your your sensory experience by basically what you've experienced in the past over time and over development is a, is a critical one too. Very similar to addiction and yes. consuming drugs yes. over time, you get tolerance. Interesting. Yes. So let's go back to your very favorite thing in the world, Mike. And I want to he- talk to you a little bit more about the signaling that occurs at the level of the spinal cord. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners, we talk a lot about the brain here at Minding the Brain. Um, the spinal cord is a key structure in our nervous system, and it's a little bit different. We haven't talked a lot about the spinal cord, so give our listeners a little bit more of a 411 on what's happening in the spinal cord with with pain. Sounds great. Yeah, I think even when, when we talk about the pain pathway, you think of the periphery being where those receptors are, right? There's detectors. That's important. And you think that it relays through the spinal cord and goes to the brain where the ultimate processing occurs. But the spinal cord is, is much more than just those telephone lines that connect the two sites. It's a major site of pain processing and and signal integration. And so when those inputs from the periphery enter the spinal cord, 
there's actually a whole network of different types of cells and different connections within those outer layers of what's called the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. So it's a really a pain processing network. And so these cells, depending on the inputs and, and the timing of the inputs and the type of inputs can either increase or decrease pain responses um, and, and are critical in the modulation of pain. So speaking of that, I do recall, again, I took my fourth year psychology of pain course at McGill University by the infamous Dr. Ronald Melzack, who was apparently, uh, uh, well, not just apparently, but he was one of the, the greatest figures in pain research and developed a theory called the gate control theory of pain. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, my 20 years of <laughs> 20 years ago, it's been a long time. But uh, what you're talking about, about that sort of increase or decreasing pain responses relates to that theory. Is that correct? 100%. And what's amazing about Melzack's work, and you're right, he's a pioneer in the field and really, and he started that legacy, which continues to this day of McGill being one of the drivers of pain research in Canada and the world. And there's actually in Canada in general, there's lots of amazing researchers. But what's amazing is that Melzack, what he proposed was way ahead of knowing the underlying mechanisms of, of how it occurs. But in general, what the gate control theory of pain is, is that we can have inputs, either descending signals from the brain or incoming sensory signals from the periphery that can gate or change our pain sensation. And so they do this by acting, now we know, kind of by acting on various inhibitory or excitatory cells within that dorsal horn or spinal cord pain processing circuit. And so I know that sounds abstract. It's maybe a little confusing to think about, but let's, let's work through an example of that. What, what happens? Let's say we're, we're doing some construction and, or in the house, you're, you're hanging a picture even, or you're doing something where you're hammering a nail into the wall and you hit your thumb. What do you automatically do? You shake your thumb, right? Or you rub it. And we think, why do we do that? Or another example, before we talk about the why, your child falls and, and scrapes their knee or hurts their knee. And you sometimes, as a parent, you'll rub that site. And so actually, there's biology in that. Activating the, the gentle rub or touch actually activates mechanical, non-painful receptors and signals that will then feed into the spinal cord and dampen the pain response through this, through this gate control. So, so touch basically can inhibit pain. And that's wow. an example of the, of the gate theory of, of pain. I am sure that you have just blown the minds of thousands of parents listening to this podcast saying, oh my goodness, there's a reason, <laughs> right? That I do this with my kids. Like you, that's so true, right? You, yeah. you just have this automatic rubbing yeah. and we do it unconsciously. But what you're saying is that it, it, by virtue of that yeah. rubbing motion, you're, you're activating different ascending fibers you got that can dampen that, that pain response at the level of, of the spinal cord. And as you were saying, Ron Melzack had that theory yeah. of something is gating how the pain signal Sent, is sent up into the brain, yeah. uh, but we didn't understand the cellular molecular basis of that, and and now we do, right? We're, yeah, we're starting to. I should say, I, I yeah. kind of misled that we're just starting. Because, really, just starting. Just starting wow. because there's so many. One well, sometimes we say the spinal cord is really a mess in terms of it's not the organization of those cells isn't in nice little layers that like in certain areas of the brain. So it's really challenging to understand all the different cell types and how they're connected. But we really are 
making some great headway in that. And then can the gate control theory of pain also explain, or maybe I'm mixing my concepts. Like, so imagine you're a football player and you're on the field and uh, you happen to break your leg but you don't feel the pain until you come off the field because of adrenaline. That's more like the descending. A hundred percent. That's a great, that's yeah. a great example of how, yes, you have descending yeah. um, efferents or, or signals from the, from the brain going back down and they can release certain types of neurotransmitter transmitters, modulators that can, that can basically close the gate and decrease the basically right. it's like you can turn up or down the volume on pain, right? Mm-hmm. Or increase or decrease the gain on that pain signaling. And so, yeah, if we're in a period of really acute stress, we can definitely decrease um, the pain. Yeah. It's like a rheostat. So back up to the brain, let's talk about how that pain signal, right? So now we've gated it, right? Or it's come up via those complex connections in the spinal cord. How is it processed in the brain? What's going on there? So pain's fairly unique compared to our other senses like touch or sight or hearing. For those senses, we kind of have one specific area, a primary sensory cortex that's involved in processing that, that sensory modality. That's not really the case for pain. So, and part of that's because if we go back to how we first started the podcast, pain has that unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. So it means there's different areas of, in the brain that are involved in processing that link to sensation and emotion. So areas linked to fear processing, unpleasant experiences. And obviously the sensory, there is that kind of touch sensory area of the brain that also helps code for, for pain, but it's not coding alone. So it's really the connections between those different areas that form this network that kind of lead to this holistic experience that we know of as pain. And actually what's really, it's been cool recently is even some areas that we don't traditionally think of as being kind of directly and intimately involved in pain processing, like the hippocampus, which is really involved in, in memory. Researchers identified there's fairly pain specific neurons, even in those regions that are, that are helping process and encode and involve relating to the memory of that pain. So obviously if it has that learning component, there's the importance of, of encoding it into memories. And so, so those brain regions are involved too in this brain pain matrix is one way that, that researchers sometimes describe it. Brain pain matrix. That is a great expression. And I didn't know that about the hippocampus. It makes sense. You know, in, in retrospect, of course, it's one of the main regions that's involved in like encoding spatial memory and also some aversive uh, learning components. So it makes sense that there'd be specific circuits within there that manage pain. But I didn't know that this was recently discovered. Mm-hmm. I, I want to also pick up on something that you were talking about, sort of that emotional component of pain. And I know there's some research as well that shows that there are even some psychological states that can be considered painful, like grief or even being neglected, can activate similar parts of the brain that we know are activated with like physical or sensory components of pain. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I think that's where we've we've actually, the definition of pain was recently revised by the International Association for the Study of Pain to basically highlight that point that it's it's not you don't need the stimuli you can have the same experiences in the absence of those of those kind of noxious or tissue damaging inputs because you're activating those same areas in the brain to elicit this very real uh, pain experience 
physical pain experience, even without a physical input. Yeah, it's interesting that they've revised that definition because it makes me wonder too. And I, I like this is sort of where we're going about like how we manage pain and how we treat pain is that we've we've kind of I guess traditionally thought of as pain as these sort of physical pain states like you know trauma to the body or even inflammatory or or, or pain due to illness mm-hmm. and without recognizing that there are these psychological states and and do we treat them with medicine right probably yes. not right so let's move into that because I'm curious to know your thoughts um let's talk about the concept of analgesia uh and and how pain medications uh work to reduce the pain state so what what exactly is analgesia it's a, a big fancy greek word <laughs> <laughs> analgesia in general is just a reduction in pain responses And so analgesia, in terms of how it occurs, it can come from natural signals in the body, like your football player example, releasing endorphins or releasing endocannabinoids, signal uh, chemical signals in our body that can dampen those those pain responses. So we can have natural, basically, painkillers in our body that can that can work and can reduce our pain. But they can also come from external agents that we can take. And so I think your second part of your question was how do pain medications work? Well, there's, there's many different mechanisms. And, and so different medications will work for different types of pain better. But a few examples are many of the over the counter pain medications that we take target enzymes that are involved in inflammatory pain processes that normally would be increasing pain. And so these drugs, the class, this class of drugs are referred to as the non steroid anti inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs. And common examples include ibuprofen, which is Advil, there's one name brand for it, as well as aspirin. Then when, if we're thinking more about chronic pain, actually some of the drugs that we have for chronic pain were actually originally developed as drugs for epilepsy. And because actually chronic pain and epilepsy kind of share some of the same patterns of this increased excitability within central nervous system neurons. And so these anti, original antiepileptic drugs can help dampen the excitability of pain processing neurons. And so an example of that is the drug gabapentin or one of the brand names is Lyrica. And so it, it has some efficacy for some types of, of chronic pain. And then one other class of, of pain medications we'll talk, I'll, I'll touch on here are the opioids. And so these opioids act on receptors. So opioid receptors in our body. So unlike the other ones, they're drugs that have are acting on specific receptors. And these receptors can once again, decrease excitability in pain processing neurons in the spinal cord and brain. But they also can act on, on because they're acting on these neurons in the brain, they can have many other potential side effects that, that I think like misuse disorders, as you were talking about before, as well as like tolerance. And so they're, they're really good for acute pain, but for chronic pain, long-term use, there's some real severe limitations of opioids for those, those conditions. For sure. And, and, you know, as I was sort of indicating in in the intro to this uh, episode, this is the real challenge with agents like the opioids, which are, you know, they're considered uh, the double-edged sword, right? They're very very good at relieving pain states, but have a huge addictive potential. And also um, because of their action on the central nervous system where they depress the cell activity uh, at high doses, they can also lead to respiratory arrest or, or overdose death. Uh, and I, and I want to like kind of 
pick up that point as well as I was sort of alluding to earlier that, you know, we don't tend to treat psychological pain states such as grief or loss or or abandonment with medicine. Uh, and yet there are populations of folks who have experienced these these states and, and do um, uh, sometimes turn to agents like opioids to relieve the psychological distress. Um, and so this is really, you know, I want to touch on the fact that we are in Canada right now in an opioid uh, crisis. We are in a poisoning crisis in that we have uh, a lot of tainted drug supply. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these increasingly more potent agents like fentanyl and carfentanyl uh, that can be mixed in with, with other substances that individuals who are, are using uh, drugs don't realize. Uh, and so uh, I just want to point out that this is this is a real crisis in, in, in Canada right now, particularly in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, where we're seeing more, more individuals using uh, to cope with the stress um, uh, of the pandemic and, and increasingly uh, lots of accidental deaths, which is devastating. So moving uh, away from that a little bit, but I do want to touch on and, and, and bring up another thread. You, so you were talking about these different agents that treat different types of pain. So I think that's an important point on the fact that pain is not necessarily unitary. It's processed somewhat differently, right? So can you talk us through a little bit more about like inflammatory pain that you had mentioned? Because that's a, it's a bit different. Um, and certainly there are, particularly in light of COVID, which is a, it causes lots of inflammation in the body. I think it'd be nice to hear a little bit more about what exactly is inflammatory pain. So that's a great point. And inflammatory pain is one good example of, of many different types of pain. So when we think about inflammatory pain, even for that type of pain, there's different, there's different varieties. Uh, acute inflama- inflammatory pain can be predictive. So when you cut your finger, as that example, it'll often swell up, you'll have inflammation and you'll have increased pain sensitivity for a time to help you protect that finger from further damage and allow it to heal. If that inflammation persists, though, it can lead to more pathological uh, um, types of inflammatory pain, like arthritis is an example. And so in general, when we think of the good kind of pain, quote unquote, here I'm doing finger quotes, is often referred to as physiological or nociceptive pain. And, and as we've kind of highlighted throughout, that's, that's the pain we want to leave intact because of its protective role. But we, when we talk more about pathological pain, another type, uh, general class of pathological pain is neuropathic pain. And so that's pain um, that is caused by direct damage to pain signaling neurons um, that can be in the periphery or in the spinal cord or in the brain. And so if it's peripheral neuropathic pain, so damage to those peripheral neurons, that examples of that would include, for example, sciatica would be an example of peripheral neuropathic pain, but there also can be central neuropathic pain, and that can be caused by by things like spinal cord injuries or even a condition like MS, where we have damage to our central um, nervous system neurons that can lead to to pathological pain as well. Yeah, M- MS being multiple sclerosis. Yes, sorry. Yeah, no worries. In case some of our listeners aren't familiar with some of the good old. Uh acronyms in science, right? But yes, MSs can cause debilitating pain and loss of um, like sensation and movement, right? You, mm-hmm. Yeah. So on that note, let's move on to the problem of chronic pain, because I think this is sort of we're leading to at the heart of this um, conversation in particular, because I know some of the work in your lab deals with chronic pain. So let's talk through what exactly is chronic pain and, and how does it happen? Like, does, is everybody susceptible? 
you know, you're sort of alluding to the fact that, you know, you can have these sort of nociceptive pain states that could be triggered into chronic pain states. So I know we don't have all the answers, but give us a little bit of what we know. Mm-hmm. Chronic pain is kind of that umbrella term that we use. So it's not really a specific clinical term, but it is a useful umbrella term to refer to pain that, that generally persists for many weeks, months, or years after that initial trigger in triggering injury or disease process has occurred and sometimes even after it's resolved. So the problem with chronic pain can be even after that source disease process or that injury, after you've healed from that broken arm, you can sometimes be left with chronic pain that can last for, for a long time after that. And so I think what's really being understood now about chronic pain is that it can become a disease in and of itself, where it's no longer just a symptom of something else. It can really be this disease in and of itself that has its own pathology. And obviously, that's severely debilitating. It's really highly prevalent, too. About one in four, one in five individuals, including in Canada, experience chronic pain. And and as we've been highlighting, we need better treatments for it. We have good, fairly good treatments for acute pain. But when it comes to chronic pain, this persistent pain that lasts, we just lack the adequate tools to properly manage manage chronic pain. What do you know what the most common form of chronic pain is? Like, because there's different types. And so I don't know, because often we group it more. But lower back pain, I would think that would probably be up there. And I think arthritis pain would be uh, would be up there as well. Migraines, see, that's where like migraines are very common. And that's an oral facial pain, right? That's one I think we'll touch on, but especially in females. So there's differences in pain sensation. And migraines, one example of where where across um, sex and gender, we see differences. Interesting. So let's get to the really exciting stuff, your research. But before we get into it, I think it's worth discussing, because uh, I always like to use these, you know, our Mining the Brain has a, you know, our goal is to translate science, to mobilize science, but also to educate. Um, and I think it's worth discussing one of the major techniques you use in your lab, which is used to me- measure pain signals in the spinal cord, and that's electrophysiology. So can you describe a little bit about what this technique is so that our listeners might be able to sort of have a visual of what's going on when you talk about your research? I would love to. So electrophysiology is recording the electri- electrical activity of the nervous system. But we, in our lab, we use kind of a sub, uh, one type of electrophysiology called patch clamp electrophysiology, where we're actually able to seal onto and record from individual neurons, whether they be in the spinal cord or in the brain. And so we can record from these neurons and we can actually see in real time. This is, this is why I love this approach so much is it's one of the powerful techniques where we can actually visualize on a monitor as we're doing this individual synaptic responses from one neuron or, or action potential firing in that neuron, the electrical signals in real time. And so just, uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief, but in terms of the, the overall approach is you take some tissue or, or it could be cells and you put them under a microscope because you need to be able to visualize them. So they're under a microscope. Then you can use a micro manipulator to move a, an electrode, which is really just a glass capillary that we've pulled to have like a micron diameter tip or less than a micron. And so we can accurately move this electrode. So it's just actually touching the surface of the cell. 
Then once we're touching the surface of the cell, we can actually add a little bit of suction and seal onto. So the membrane of the cell seals onto the pipette, and then we can pull that patch of membrane away. So the inside of our cell of, that we're recording is actually continuous, electrically continuous, with our electrode. And so with this approach, we can be, in terms of electrical readouts, we're talking about changes in millivolts if we're looking at at membrane potentials or voltage, or if we're looking at currents, it can be picoamps in terms of the, the, the currents that we can detect. And so that's 10 to the minus 12. So it really shows the precision of be enabled by kind of these uh, high power amplifiers, digital converters that we can basically have these precise recordings and, 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 and study these things in real time. And just a quick aside is I think we, us electrophysiologists get a bad rap because we sometimes can be, even though we're scientists, very superstitious and very finicky. <laughs> that's because of the sensitivity of these recordings to electrical background noise. So for example, we're literally tinfoiling different parts of our components. If someone brings a cell phone near or moves too quickly near our equipment, we might stop. So. Um. So, oh um, yeah, you're the tinfoil hat um, brigade, <laughs> the neuroscience. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and and you know, I, I I love the detail in which you explain uh, this technique, Mike, and it just goes to show how incredible you are as a teacher. But uh, I also think it's it's worth you know noting that this is why science is often very expensive to do. You can imagine for those of you that haven't you know possibly seen in an electrophysiology rig, just the amount of of equipment and 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 skill necessary to do this kind of work and it's it can be very costly and i do know from following you and your students on twitter and, and other efis scientists that you know when you actually patch and record successfully it's like everybody has a party in the lab because yeah. you're you're able to kind of listen in and to the cell and and then you can do all kinds of fun manipulations you can add things to the the medium in which the cell is or the slices is, is located so you can put drugs in there and you can change different elements of of what the cell is experiencing in order to really understand a little bit more about um, how that cell is responding to different environmental or drug inputs, I guess. So it's true. We definitely celebrate all often. Like you call someone over, they'll call you over because it is, it's kind of like fishing where you have to be mm -hmm. patient. You can wait, you try and try, but when you get that successful recording, it's like, huh, it's like catching that big fish. And so, yeah, yeah. so there is yeah. I guess, a camaraderie there and, and it's, mm -hmm. it's fun. Landing the 50 pound bass. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit more about now you, you know, you've, you've described this technique. What exactly is your lab looking at? So we're really trying to understand spinal pain processing at that molecular and cellular level. So we're using approaches like uh, electrophysiology, but many other approaches to understand how certain proteins called channels and receptors are shaping the excitability in these pain processing networks. And as we're doing that, we're trying to also understand how differences across variables like development can cha change these pain responses. So we're at first trying to understand kind of baseline pain or good pain signaling and how it works. And then we're trying to understand how changes in these different receptors and channels can cause alterations in spinal cord excitability that ultimately lead to chronic pain. And so we're trying to understand how you lose that balance, basically, of excitability between the brakes and gas pedals on spinal pain processing to cause that kind of out of control um, excitability that ultimately can lead to lead to chronic pain. 
And so I, and just in terms of the, the general goal or context of this type of research is we really want to identify what's going wrong at a molecular level in order to potentially d- identify new therapeutic targets. So potential new targets that can be, that can lead to new treatments for, for different types of pain is the big picture goal of research like mine, but at many labs worldwide that are all kind of tackling this challenge. Fantastic. And I know you also very excitingly have a collaboration with Dr. Eve Sai, who is a neurosurgeon at the Civic Hospital, to see, you know, obviously you're a very basic scientist. You're really looking at this as a, at a you know, an organismic slash cellular level. But, you know, it's always a goal with science to, to be able to, particularly us who study things like disease states, like to be able to translate that into humans, right? It's one thing to see in the lab, but do we actually see um, what we see in the lab in, in humans? So can you talk to us a little bit about this collaboration? You bet. And I'd first like to just start by saying thank you for these type of knowledge mobilization opportunities because they're critical. And actually, my collaboration with Eve Sai, start doctor Eve Sai, started with this this kind of conversation. She came to Carleton and gave a research talk. And afterwards, we were chatting in my office and she started to talk about how she has this human spinal cord tissue from organ donors. And we started to think about, about how we could potentially partner to look at that that re- precious resource in the context of pain. So just a little bit more about Dr. Sai's program is she gets the spinal cord tissue from human organ donors that have consented. They've consented, their families have consented for the use of this tissue for research. And I should say up front, we treat this as a really precious gift and a selfless gift that comes from both the do- donors and their families. And so we really try to maximize the amount of information that we can get and the amount of experiments that we can, that we can do with this tissue. But the unique aspect here is that we're getting spinal cord tissue from organ donors. So after the organs have been removed to save lives or improve lives of, of others, they're, they're taken out. Our team led by Dr. Sai can come in and take out that human spinal cord within one to three hours after the heart stopping, which is very different than most human tissue samples that are from autopsies that are many, many hours after death where the, where the really the health of the tissue is compromised. So because this tissue can be so well preserved and the cells are still living, it means we can do the same type of experiments that we do in our preclinical rodent models in human tissue. And so we can use electrophysiology on, on human neurons. We can do biochemistry to look at where these different types of pain signaling receptors are located and what types are there in the human tissue as we've done for the rodent tissue. And so this, the power of this means we can start to bridge that gap between our preclinical research and, and humans to test whether those assumptions that the underlying biology is the same. So we're, we're starting to be able to answer those questions and look at the mechanisms of pain processing that's actually occurring within the human spinal cord. That is so fascinating. I love it. This is a, a really, really valuable collaboration. And I, and I really admire the work that you do with, with these, this donor tissue. So now moving in uh, and a little bit more deep with this um, collaboration, I know your incredible former PhD student, who's now a postdoc, Dr. Anne-Marie Didet, 
Deck has a really fascinating line of research that explores sex slash gender differences with pain processing. And just a, a quick note here to say in Minding the Brain, we do recognize that gender exists on a spectrum, uh, that it is not a binary. But I just want to make a note to say that um, science often lags behind our sociocultural understanding of gender. So often in the lab, we do, at least in basic science, particularly in rodent models, we would consider this sex differences. And uh, I know Mike works with donor tissue with often we don't, um, we can't really glean gender. So um, I just a note to say that I know you study sex differences, but I do want to acknowledge that um, we need obviously need more work understanding the full gender spectrum and how um, pain, pain, pain signaling and pain processing is differentially experienced across gender. Um, but let's pause on that and just really talk about that really fascinating work looking at sex differences in pain processing. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for uh, for spelling out those differences between sex and gender too, which are critical. Um, so some of our really exciting recent discoveries came from when we were doing these experiments on human tissue. And actually, we were increasing the number of samples that we had processed from different donors and, and, and the effect, the mechanism that we were studying, the markers that were going up and down, that effect got smaller. And we're like, well, what's going on? Like, was it, was the effect not real? Like, you start to question how you're doing the experiments. But I remember that moment when, when Amory, Dr. Dedek and I went back to the data and looked at, divided it by male and female and saw that there was this mechanism that's occurring within the males that was not there in the females. And so that led us to go down a whole, a, a whole chapter of Amory's thesis and actually a paper that's, that's coming out in the next, in the next month or so, um, where we repeated these experiments using various different models, rodent and human tissue models of, of pain to identify there's this mechanism that causes basically this loss of breaks of excitability on excitability that directly ties to the increase on the gas pedal mechanisms of excitability. So you have loss of synaptic inhibition directly coupled to increased synaptic excitation of certain um, glutamate receptors called NMDA receptors. But that whole mechanism was there in males, was not there in females for both our rodent and human models. So we're seeing these major sex differences in the biology, especially of pat of, of chronic pain. And there, there's been kind of a real push in the field and emergence of this in the field of pain research. But a lot of the discoveries have been on the immune side, that you have different immune and inflammatory factors driving these differences. But what we're seeing now is even as you get to the neurons themselves, how the receptor activity has changed is different in males versus females. And so we, it's just scratching the surface of the questions now we need to, we need to explore and answer in terms of why that's occurring and how that's occurring and what the different mechanisms are that are, that are leading to chronic pain in males as well as females, or I should say females as well as males. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, I, I mean, I'm getting all these fireworks in my brain. Like you do like all kinds of developmental work. Like when yes. does this switch happen? Yes. Like, is it, is it hormonal? Is it like through like organization of the spinal cord? Um, obviously there's, this has treatment implica implications, right? If we're, yes. if the basic cellular machinery is different, like how, how can we be seeing this, you know, born out with treatments, you know, obviously there's, there'll be differences in how it's processed. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. I love the story uh, of how you discovered this, because I think if there's one truism is that uh, science is serendipitous. Yeah. 
Right. Often we discover these things completely by chance. Um, and you, you alluded to a few other things earlier and uh, you're talking about the drugs that are used to treat epilepsy. Oh, look, mm-hmm. they're also, you know, happen to be working in chronic pain. Um, and I think that that just encapsulates the beauty and the, the, the magic of science, you know, mm-hmm. and that and it's also that chance favors the prepared mind, right? That yeah. when we're working in a lab and we see these phenomena, like you and Anne-Marie, we're probably looking at the data going, what's going on? But you thought to analyze it by by sex and to take a look at that. And and I just think that that's why we're in this gig, right? It, it's it's these sort of unexpected findings that, that often get us in, in these really new novel directions. So on that note, and, and one final question for you, Mike, you know, you've been at this, I don't know, 15 years in your research career, 15 years? younger than me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to do the math. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Um, what have you learned throughout your journey as a scientist? What's the biggest lesson? Uh, the biggest lesson? I'd say one of the big lessons is just the importance of a team, and it really takes a village. So just even talking about some of what we talked about today, how it was based on discoveries that came before us, right, that that used previous discoveries. But then how, as we've been tackling these kind of, it seems overwhelming, these questions, and you have these kind of finite like set of, of skills and tools, how partnering can really increase your power of, uh, to tackle these questions. And so we have amazing collaborators at Yale University that were involved, Paul Lombrosa's lab in, in Quebec, Yves de Conning's lab. Um, we've had Dr. Sai at the Ottawa Hospital. We've had uh, recently Ariel Levine at NIH, and now I'm realizing the danger of doing this. That yeah, you're going <laughs> to... But those are examples. <laughs> Emmanuel Bernay in France. And I'm just using that as an example to show how... Science really is a global community and it's really that team-based approach and, and even other, other collaborators that are working on same thing and similar things and how you can, the power of working as a team, meeting together as scientists to exchange ideas and, and to compare notes basically kind of thing to, to tackle these challenges. And it's just been really encouraging and enriching to be a part of that and, and mentoring. I've, I'm saying these collaborators, but really all of this work is driven. It's not me in the lab. It's my, it's my students. It's my postdocs. So students like Anne-Marie, Shia, many others. I don't better. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop there. Sorry, other students, because <laughs> I'm going to forget, but it's, they're driving the bus forward. They're the ones doing the work and the dedication is inspiring and in, in, in terms of the amount of work and, and commitment they've put into this type of research. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun to be involved. I agree. In that. Yeah. I think there's, there's been this sort of when I, before I started really in science, I always had this idea of like the lone scientist toiling away in the lab. And now I understand that the best science is collaborative and yes. it's fun. It's really fun when you're working with people who are really excited and engaged um, with the kinds of research questions that you're interested in. And I, and also the mentorship piece. It's so wonderful to see students come through your lab and acquire the skills and generate confidence and find, you know, discover their own interesting discoveries and to see them light up. Um, it really is, uh, one of the best things that we, that we do. So I, I want to take the moment to thank you, Mike, for coming on to Minding the Brain today. I think your research is, is set to, is really poised to, to change the way that we see pain uh, and treat pain. And your work, along with that of your collaborators, is truly exciting. And, I, and I'm grateful for you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Kim. It's been a pleasure and a lot of fun. 
Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Thank you.